Earlier this summer, we planted in our garden what we thought were sunflower seeds. And you'll never guess what started to grow. Sunflowers. Because they were sunflower seeds. And if you plant sunflower seeds, there's only one plant you're ever going to get. From a sunflower seed, you'll get a sunflower. Why? Well, it's a very simple principle. You reap what you sow. Farmers depend upon it all the time. And guess what? It works. And that's the agricultural principle that Paul brings to our attention in this next section. Whatever you sow, that's what you'll reap. And we're going to break down these verses into three sections. Now, we're going to skip verse 6 initially. We'll come back to that later. And we're going to start at verse 7. And this is the first point. God knows what you are sowing. God knows what you are sowing. So, says Paul, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Now, first of all, I suppose we need to decide what this sowing actually refers to. Because in the parable of the sower that Jesus told, um, a sower went out to sow and he tells his disciples that as far as that particular parable is concerned, the seed that's being sown represents something very specific. It's the preaching of the word of God. It's the preaching of the gospel. So does that mean that we must interpret sowing in the same way here? Well, actually, no, it doesn't. Paul's using a similar illustration, but he's not talking about the same thing. Whatever a man sows, he says. And in verse 8, he talks about people who are sowing to the flesh. People who are sowing according to their old sinful nature. So we can't be talking about preaching the gospel as Jesus did in the parable of the sower. Look at the context in which this is set. Back in verses 4 and 5. Let each one examine his own work. Each one shall bear his own load. And we saw last week that means completing the allotted task that God has given you to do. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What is this sowing that Paul's referring to here? Well, it's simply this. Every thought that you think, every attitude that you feel, every word that you speak, every deed that you do, Every deed that you know you ought to have done, but you haven't. Each one is like a seed that you plant. And you will reap according to the way that you are sowing in your life. 
Now we'll unpack a little bit further this issue of sowing and reaping shortly. But the first thing to note is that in all of this you won't fool God. He sees and knows exactly what the state of your life is. We read, uh, according to his word, he is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He knows each one of us. When we were looking at the final portion of chapter 5, that sermon was entitled, All Change. And we saw there how Paul was describing the kind of life that a Christian will now live because they are a Christian. Because they are walking in union with God. Spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-transformed, spirit-empowered. If you are a Christian, you are all of those things. Bearing the evidence of a changed heart, a new character, a new will. If you are none of those things, you are not a Christian believer. What Paul is saying here is that God knows those who are his own. He knows that seed, which is the seed of a changed heart. A new character, a new will. And he knows that seed which is the seed still of an old, the old sinful nature that has not changed. And here's an issue for each of us this afternoon before we go any further and before we get into verse 8 proper. What kind of seed are you sowing? Is the seed that you're sowing in all of your daily living and in every area of your life, is it a seed which is giving evidence of a changed heart, a new character, a new will as someone who is in Christ Jesus? Or is that seed actually giving evidence that you are still of your old sinful nature and therefore unconverted and unsaved? And here's the thing. This is an area where, up to some point, we're able actually to deceive each other. We can fool each other. We can pull the wool over each other's eyes. To some degree, you can even fool yourself. But you won't fool God. You won't mislead him. You won't misdirect him. He sees. He knows. He knows the state of your soul before him. He will not be mocked. And one day, one day, the harvest of all that you've been sowing will be reaped. And God knows. When we planted those little sunflower seeds in the early part of the summer, for a short time there was nothing to be seen at all above the surface of the soil. There was stuff going on underneath, but nothing visible. Then little green shoots started to appear. It's amazing how excited you can become over a little green shoot. And they started getting bigger and bigger. But for someone like me, who doesn't have the slightest shade of green on any of my fingers, 
It could have been anything coming up out of the soil. Someone could have come along in the middle of the night and swapped seeds. And I wouldn't have been any the wiser as those little shoots were coming up through the soil. But the day came when all was revealed. Because there, in our garden, to our, our amazement, was an eight-foot-tall sunflower. Only if I had found myself looking at a two-foot thistle would I have then realized that all was not quite right and I'd been conned. But we reaped what we had sown. You might be someone sitting here in this building or even at home this afternoon and perhaps you've convinced yourself to some degree perhaps you've managed to convince others that the seed that you're planting is the genuine article of a transformed life by the spirit of God when the reality is it's no such thing maybe you've managed to fool your family and your friends but you haven't fooled God and one day the harvest will take place and all will be clear on that day he looks at each one of us this afternoon he knows precisely the nature of the seed that you're planting he knows precisely the harvest that will be reaped and actually if we're honest we all know we all know because if you're a christian Here's something I can hope, I hope that actually you really take to heart as a real encouragement. If you're a Christian, the Bible tells you that by means of God's word and by the means of his Holy Spirit working within you, you may know, you may believe and be convinced. That's one theme that the Apostle John in particular pushes home both in his gospel and in his epistles. Paul himself declared, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded. That's the word of God and the work of his spirit in the life of a man who once was describing himself as the chief of sinners. Not many people would have disagreed with him. But he knew, because as a Christian you can. You can know that you're planting good seed. And you can be assured of what is going to be reaped. Verse 7 tells you, whatever it is you're actually sowing, it is known to God. You will reap that which is certain. And Paul describes it like this. Every man... Every woman, every boy, every girl is doing one of two things every single day. You've been doing it today, even if you hadn't realized. You'll carry on doing it today. You'll do it first thing tomorrow morning when you get up. You are either sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the spirit. This is another of those phrases 
that the Bible has where it splits all of humanity into two camps. Everyone in this whole world is in one of two camps. You're either sowing to the spirit or you're sowing to the flesh. And this is our second point and that's verse 8. Sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. If you're someone who perhaps you've even half deceived yourself, well, this verse helps to uncover it. And if you're a genuine believer, seeking to sow the spirit in your life, this verse will help to establish you in that. And we need to remember what we've already learned regarding our ongoing struggles with the old nature that Paul has highlighted so helpfully in this letter. We will never sow perfectly in this life to the Spirit. But it should be an ever-growing trend in our lives. Alistair Begg has a very helpful take on this, or at least I found it helpful, and I hope you will too. He pictures it this way. Two distinct fields into which we may plant a seed. And for those of us who are Christians, we must actively decide every single day and in every area of our lives, in which field am I going to sow? Is the battle going to be won today? And he puts a, throws out a few thoughts. Let me share a few of them. You're going out with your girlfriend or your boyfriend tonight. In which field will you sow? You're in business. You're about to strike a deal. In which field will you sow? You're filling out your tax return or your expenses claim. In which field will you sow? A friend has opened up to you in confidence about a personal matter they're struggling with. You're tempted to go and gossip it to someone else. In which field will you choose to sow? Someone has said something to you that was hurtful. You can dwell on it, become bitter, or you can take it to the Lord and find in him the grace that you need not to bear a grudge. In which field will you sow? What you sow, where you sow, will determine what you reap. Sowing to the flesh is to do anything which would fall under any of those categories back in verses 19 to 21 of the previous chapter, for example. Or... Sowing to the flesh means that you've taken down one of those three bottles of poison in the very last verse of chapter 5. Holding grudges, nurturing envy and jealousy, thinking about impure things, giving in to the urge to gossip, 
dwelling on all kinds of things which are impure, watching what you shouldn't be watching, not reading what you should be reading, feeding lusts and desires which are ungodly and unholy, exercising no self-control, pursuing worldly riches over spiritual riches, sowing to the flesh. Now, sowing a seed, that's not something that you do unconsciously or in your sleep, is it? When we planted those sunflower seeds, we knew exactly what we were doing. We decided to do it and we did it. A farmer does not sow a field by chance. He doesn't wake up one morning to a a field full of barley and think to himself, where on earth did that come from? He did it. He prepared the ground. He planted the seed. He knew what time of year to do it. He knew how to take care of it. It was a very decided thing that he did in planting the seed. Planting seeds is. It's the same with every thought and word and action. Where you choose to go, where you choose not to go. Who you choose to be with, who you choose not to be with. Everything considered and thought through. What kind of sowing is this that I'm about to do? What will it reap? Well, sowing to the Spirit, well, hopefully you're getting the idea by now. Well, for a start, you could look at those verses in chapter 5, those graces which are the fruit of the Spirit. How can I sow those attitudes in my life? How can I do it for the rest of today? How can I do it tomorrow? How can people see those graces in my life in all the different circumstances that I'm facing? Which field are you sowing in? Which field will you sow in tomorrow? And what of the reaping? What of the reaping? Well, if I was a preacher of the prosperity gospel, I'd be telling you that you sow by writing out a nice fat check to ianhighamministries.com and that you'll reap when God multiplies that ten times or a hundred times in your bank account by this time next year. But I'm not. And neither was Paul. And what does he say? Well, he says two things. First, if you reap to your flesh, and that is the pattern of your life, then that can only mean one thing. If, you're, if you sow to your flesh, you'll reap to your flesh because you're still fleshly. You are still of your old sinful nature if you're sowing to the flesh. You will be hardened in your heart. You'll become ever more set in your sinful ways. And it will all lead to the eternal destruction of your soul under the judgment and the condemnation of God. Now, of course, as Christians, we continue to pray for such people. And we pray for them because that's how we used to be. And God changed us. 
and he can still change them. And so we pray for them that, because God is in the business of conquering hard, stubborn hearts. And he can, by the power of his gospel, he did it to you. He did it to me. But if you reap to the Spirit, well, that is because you are of the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, he's in you. You're seeking day by day to walk in him and with him. He has done. He continues to do that saving work of grace in your life. You belong to Christ. And you will grow in sanctification. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 at verse 22. Having been set free from sin. Of course, being set free is a, a big theme in Galatians. We've seen that already in our studies. And having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness. You are sowing to the Spirit. And the end, everlasting life. And so Paul presents us with these two very distinctive things. There's sowing to the flesh, sowing to the sinful nature, or there's sowing to the Spirit of God. And this side leads to corruption and destruction. And this side leads to sanctification and life everlasting. And where you are sowing is a clear indication of what it is that you're going to reap. Just let me make one thing clear, though. This is not to say that you hold your destiny in your own hands according to how you decide to sow. Because if you're still in your sins, it is impossible for you to sow to the Spirit. You can't be thinking to yourself, so, if I sow like this, and sow, and keep on sowing like this, eventually, I'll have sown enough good that I'll reap good things. That's not what Paul is saying here. If you're going to heaven, then the only reason you're going to be in heaven is because of the merits of Christ. And because of the grace of God towards you. And for no other reason. But there is this direct correlation, nevertheless, between sowing and reaping. These are statements of fact and truth from the mouth of God through the pen of Paul. And it's not that if you try hard enough to sow good things, you can earn a good harvest. That's not what Paul is saying. So please don't mistake him and think that it, that's what it is. If you remain in your sin, your life will be of one of sowing to the flesh. And you will reap corruption. You will reap, reap destruction on the last day. If your life is typified by sowing to the flesh, then you are still in your sins. And God is not mocked. He knows who you are. But if you are in Christ... If you are walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, then your life will be so transformed 
that now you will be sowing to the Spirit. And the end is also secure because that is the work of Christ as well and the work of God's grace, reaping everlasting life. And as a Christian, in being reminded of what you will one day reap in Christ, the Spirit of God spurs you on to sow that which you should be sowing. Because this is what it is to be a Christian. And this is what Christ has in store for me. So why would I not live like this? For him. And then Paul concludes this section by reminding us that one very evident thing in sowing to the Spirit of God is in doing good. And especially doing good to the household of faith. To those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so a very evident part of this sowing to the spirit within the church. Is that it's made up of people who never tire in doing good. Now of course it is true that many people even in their sinful state, they're able to exercise a degree of compassion and justice and mercy. Even simple people can do that. But what does Paul say to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 of his letter to them? Very well known, very well known words, aren't they? By grace you've been saved. Through faith, it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It isn't of works. None of us can boast about what God is doing because it's God who's doing it. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There are very specific things that God has for you to do as a Christian because you're a Christian. God prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. There are good works which God has for you to do, which only you can do, because you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, unsaved people are capable of doing virtuous things. They can be kind towards each other. You've seen that. They can give generously to charity. You've seen that. There's just one problem though. In this sinful world, when people do those things, people get applauded for it. People exalt people when they do good. They may even be publicly recognized. They may even be publicly awarded or rewarded. Rewarded. Who hasn't heard of Marcus Rashford and his free school meals campaign? Now, I don't care what you think of that or what, you're, what side you're on. 
But within a matter of a few months, what did the world do? Gave him an MBE. Applauding the man for what he's done. But here's the issue. They do not do it to glorify God. And that actually is a big issue. They do it so that they can applaud each other. But they don't do it in order that God might be glorified. Sometimes people who are unsaved do things which are in accord with God's word. But they don't do it because it's in accord with God's word. And they don't do it out of any sense of obedience to God either. That is a difference more significant than perhaps some of you have paused to think about. Because that's where the Christian life completely turns around, you see. Because everything now is aimed at God. Everything is about glorifying him. Everything now is to be an expression of him. And that's our motivation for doing these things. That's the reason we do these things. Because everything now is about honoring the Lord. And it's done for him and for his glory. And we do these things as one who's following after Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said. This, these are the words of Jesus. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Well, there's a difference between us and the world, isn't there? Bless those who curse you. You won't see quite so much of that in the world. Do good to those who hate you. Not too much of that in the world either. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. Be the children of God that you are. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So yes, be good to do, uh, do good to those in the church, says Paul. But remember, it has to be a goodness that far exceeds the kind of goodness that you'll see in the world. But then Jesus continues, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Well, there's a big difference between us and the world. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets 
or like Bill Gates did when he called an international press conference to tell everybody he was going to give billions to charity. That's not the Christian way. You do it unseen. Unseen. They do it that they may have their glory from men. I say to you, they have their reward. And that's as much reward as they'll have. They've already reaped as much as they're going to ever reap. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. There's a very significant difference between that good that the world seeks to do, and in many ways... It shouldn't be decried if they're going to do good to each other. But there's a, whole, there's a whole different level and a whole different position for the Christian when it comes to doing good. Just going back to verse 6 briefly. There you have the exhortation that, that those who do you good by bringing to you the word of God... You must do them good by supporting them in their spiritual work, which of course simply means that for those who are pastors, elders, teachers, evangelists, who've been set aside in the church to give themselves full time to preaching and teaching the word of God and to the gospel of Christ, they should be taken care of so that they can give themselves to that work. Well, there's a good work that unbelievers are not likely to do. So believers must do it. And all of our acts of good surely must exceed that which we find in the world. And sometimes our response to this, we read verses like this and we decide that, well, surely then the thing that we must do is as a church, we are duty bound to have all kinds of big do-good projects in the church well, we might sometimes become aware of a need that does actually require that kind of a response. It might be something that's far too big for any of us individually to deal with. But together as a church, we actually can do something about it. And if you become aware of a need like that, well, as a church, go for it. But I'm not convinced that at its heart, that's the best way to view this exhortation that Paul puts before us here. I believe primarily this is this is actually personal to each of us individually. As you have opportunity is the phrase that's used. As you have opportunity. Do you remember Dorcas in Acts chapter 9? Isn't she just a brilliant example of this principle? Do you remember the depth of the grief of so many women when she died? Why? Because of what she herself had taken upon herself to do. What is it that we read about Dorcas? This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. The widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. She had a skill. She was able to make clothes. What can you do? She clearly had the resources to do it. What are the resources that God has put in your hands and are, are, they're at your disposal? 
Maybe it's something as simple as having a healthy body that can go and do the shopping for someone else who can't. But the principle is there. Dorcas was a Christian with a skill she could employ, with resources she could use, and she put those two things together to meet a need that she saw as she had opportunity to do it. And that at its heart, I believe, is what Paul is emphasizing upon every single one of us as Christian believers. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. It's a task the master just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding. Yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Work for Jesus day by day. Serve him ever. Falter never. Christ obey. Yield him service loyal, true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. And I believe that if each of us are doing that towards the people who all our lives are touching, very often you in your small corner and I in mine, as the old chorus puts it, between us we can reach and touch many more lives like that than trying to put some clever scheme together as a local church. Not that there's anything wrong in doing that, if it meets a need. And we need to be carefully on that one as well. You know, secretly, part of our motivation in doing something big as a church could be that we don't think our church is getting the right level of attention and recognition that it should, or that that church over there is getting, and we're a little bit envious of them, but uh-oh, be careful Chapter 5, verse 26. And of course, the other problem in, in big, clever projects is that in the long run, uh, if you've been around the block a few times, it often tends to be just a few committed ones who keep that work going because the first six months are so exciting and really great, but having the stickability to still be there two years later, five years later, ten years later, well, it's just not fun anymore. But there's a work for Jesus that you can do. These verses are all about your personal walk with Christ in the spirit of Christ. It'll show itself, it'll evidence itself in the good that you do to others. And especially in the good that you do to other believers. Bearing one another's burdens. Often it'll be done quietly. Often it will be done without fanfare. Often it will be unseen by anybody else. But your heavenly father sees it. And he's not mocked. And you never grow weary in doing it. You never expect anything in return for it in this life. You do it because that's what a follower of Christ does. And a follower of Christ is who you are. Good works befitting a child of God 
and in accord with that which you shall one day reap because you are his child. How is your sowing going? Are you certain that in Christ you have the certain hope of life everlasting?